They say plants like music. Yeah, no, like really, they, they respond to the vibrations of it, which means that this playlist you're listening to, the plants are too. You know what else plants like? Organic soil from miracle Grow. It's made with all the best stuff like wood fiber and compost. Plus, it's OMRI certified organic, which officially means it's made with superior ingredients. And when you give your plants the stuff that makes them happy, they won't judge you on your iffy playlist. Hear that, plants? So go ahead and give them miracle Grow. Thank you, all of you at home, for joining us this hour. I'm Alicia Menendez. Alex is the night off this weekend on Christmas Eve. It's one of the coldest nights ever on record in our nation's capital. By the time the sun went down, temperatures were hovering around 18 degrees. And it was this night, one of the coldest nights of the year and a season all about welcoming the stranger, that the Republican governor of Texas decided to deposit a group of migrant asylum seekers, some of them children, on the freezing cold sidewalk with nowhere to go. Three buses filled with more than 100 migrants arrived in D.C. late Saturday night, where they were unceremoniously dropped off outside the vice president's official residence. They were sent there by the Republican governor of Texas, Greg Abbott, to make a political point about what is happening at the southern border. The buses were filled with families with children, many of them wearing nothing warmer than a T-shirt. Governor Abbott did not tell anybody ahead of time that he was going to do this, but a relief agency met the migrants in front of the vice president's home when they arrived, welcomed them with food, warm clothing, and blankets. They had been tipped off by another NGO working along the border who made sure the migrants did not arrive in the freezing cold on Christmas Eve with no one to help them. Once they arrived, volunteers drove all the migrants to shelters and to a nearby church to welcome them to America. A member of the relief organization spoke to the local ABC affiliate on Saturday. It really does show the cruelty behind Governor Abbott um, and his insistence on continuing to bus people here without care about, you know, people arriving late at night on Christmas Eve when the weather is so cold. You know, people are getting off the buses. They don't have coats. They, they, you know, don't have clothes for this kind of weather and they're freezing. They're freezing. The Republican Party purports to be the party of family, Christian values. But this is how Republican Governor Greg Abbott chose to celebrate his Christmas Eve, the crisis of his own invention. This wasn't the first time a Republican politician has pulled this kind of stunt in the name of protecting our borders. It's not even the first time Abbott himself has bussed a group of migrants to be dropped off on the vice president's doorstep. Abbott did the exact same thing back in September. Florida Governor Ron DeSantis, too, he used taxpayer money this year to charter two planes to fly migrants to Martha's Vineyard. The migrants were told they were headed to Boston. They did not know until they landed that the Republican of Florida had actually sent them to an island 90 miles away to win some political points. Then there's what Arizona's Republican governor, Doug Ducey, did in his state. Governor Ducey spent the last months of his term building a fake border wall out of metal shipping containers. The cost to taxpayers, $82 million dollars. Now, back in Texas, Governor Abbott has also begun to militarize the southern border to deter migrants, arming National Guard troops with rifles, building fences of barbed wires to create a physical blockade at a popular border crossing point. Republicans have attempted to portray these stunts as acts of protest in order to start a conversation about what they say is an immigration crisis in this country. Dropping off busloads of migrants on the sidewalk in the freezing cold on Christmas Eve 
This isn't about finding solutions or answers or caring for thy neighbor. No, it is about raw politics. It is political theater, and the cruelty is the point. And so is furthering their own political self-interest. Greg Abbott, Ron DeSantis, Doug Ducey, they are all trying to showcase their pro-Trump bona fides on immigration in order to best position themselves for the presidential race in 2024. They are using human beings as political footballs, stacking up metal boxes on federal land, building sporadic barbed wire fences. That's not well-intentioned efforts at immigration reform. It's all about trying to win the support of the base to boost their chances in a primary. And Republican leaders are stoking the embers of a self-made crisis against the backdrop of what really has been a crisis for migrants seeking asylum in the United States. Back in 2020, at the start of the pandemic, Donald Trump activated a piece of arcane law called Title 42. Basically lets the president close the borders to anyone seeking asylum in this country for the purpose of maintaining public health. It allows border agents to turn away anyone fleeing from danger seeking refuge in this country without so much as a hearing. Around a million asylum seekers are estimated to have been turned away at the U.S. border crossings since it went into effect. And this month, Title 42 was set to expire. Thousands of migrants have been queuing up at the southern border, waiting for the chance to seek asylum again. And so rather than propose any actual immigration reform measures, a group of Republican lawmakers sued the Biden administration to try and keep the public health law in effect indefinitely. The case, now before the Supreme Court, and just tonight, there was a big development. The Supreme Court ruled that the policy of turning away asylum seekers will stay in place until the court can fully consider the case. Title 42 is not immigration policy meant for extended use. It's a public health measure that Republicans are now using as a political cudgel to advance their anti-immigrant agenda, in line with their other stunts and their other tactics. Perhaps Democratic Congressman Joaquin Castro in reacting to Abbott's Christmas Eve stunt summed up best this moment of Republican politics. Quote, how Christian of you. Joining us now, Texas Democratic Congressman Joaquin Castro. Congressman, thank you so much for joining us. First, I want to get your reaction to the Supreme Court upholding Title 42 while they consider the case. What does that mean practically? Well, it it means that Title 42 is going to stay in place for several more months, at months, at least until next June. And uh, I actually agree with Justice Gorsuch, a very conservative Supreme Court justice, who said that that Title 42 is not meant to deal with the border. It's meant to deal with COVID. And it's very ironic, Alicia, that conservative Republicans are using Title 42, a health emergency provision, uh, to do what they're doing on the border when a lot of these people didn't even take COVID seriously. They never even treated it like an emergency. And yet they're using this policy uh, on the border. Right. I mean, your tweet from this weekend really struck a nerve reacting to Governor Abbott's decision to send migrants to the vice president's doorstep. I want you to tell me about your reaction when you first saw those images. Well, you know, like a lot of people in politics and just a lot of Americans, I actually wasn't on social media very much on Christmas Eve. I was trying to actually enjoy the night with my family. Uh, And then, you know, I I glanced at the video that you're showing now uh, and read what was going on. And I was so upset that that Greg Abbott, because he thinks he can become president and because these guys like like Abbott and DeSantis are so drunk on Trump and this, that they're trying to be as mean and as cruel as they possibly can. 
Uh, and to dump these people off in 18 degree weather, you see the video there, that young boy just has a sweatshirt on, yeah. a sweatshirt. You know, you think about all the parents and their kids when you take them out, even if it's 40 degrees, you know, 18 degree weather, uh, little kids with a sweatshirt on, and you're just going to dump them on the side of a road near the vice president's house because you want to show how tough you are and how cool you are. And you want to be meaner than Ron DeSantis because you believe that that's the way to win. Uh, in the era of Donald Trump. I mean, it's just heartless. You know, it, it's just completely heartless. Uh, and it also demonstrates that the Republican Party, they really don't have any solutions. You know, I used to really give some of these guys the benefit of the doubt that maybe in their heart of hearts or in their minds, they're really trying to reach a solution. Now, they're just trying to be mean. They're just trying to demonstrate how tough they are. Uh, they're trying to play to a certain base. And there is a sizable base of the Republican Party right now that eats this stuff up. They absolutely love it. Uh, and you see them all over Twitter. You see them all over social media. And that's part of what fuels these guys. If that is true, right, if you have this anti-immigrant behavior, this cruelty because of the lead up to 2024, I wonder then what you think the antidote to that is. I, well, I mean, the, the ultimate antidote is to vote as many of these people out of office as you possibly can. Uh, it is to to win in Democratic elections. It's to organize. It's to get out the vote. Uh, but, you know, you would hope that the Republican Party also uh, would correct itself at some point, that they would get out of this era of Donald Trump uh, and, and, you know, take a lesson from the 2022 elections uh, where they were supposed to win all these seats, that it was going to be a red wave. Uh, and then they got beat. You know, they, they got pushed back by the American people. Uh, but, you know, you still see Greg Abbott doing what he's doing. Here's the thing. You've, you've heard all the same rhetoric that I've heard and what someone like Governor Abbott says, what these other Republican governors says, that what they're actually doing is standing up for the people in their state, right? Creating a false choice as though you can only do one or the other. And I wonder what your retort is to that appeal. Well, first of all, there was something in the last few weeks that happened that was productive with respect to the border. A few things. Uh, for example, I introduced a bill uh, on uh, controlling small arms trafficking, the, the, the small arms that are going to Mexico. We got to make it safer for folks in their home countries so that they're not threatened by drug gangs who have all these weapons, make it safer for them to stay, help create opportunity in those countries, work with those countries to do that. But the bigger thing that happened is that the Congress actually, uh, in the omnibus bill, passed $2 billion uh, to, to handle the situation at the border, including offering economic relief to cities in Texas like McAllen and Del Rio and El Paso and San Antonio uh, that are dealing with this situation. You know, Politico wrote an article a few days ago about how San Antonio has been a model in being able to uh, help migrants get to their destinations. A lot of them have family members here, so they're trying to get to their family members. You know, hundreds of thousands of people have been sent from the border areas to San Antonio over the last few years, and the city, our mayor and the city, and Catholic Charities and other organizations have not taken them and dumped them on the side of the road. They've actually helped them get to their family members by bus or by plane. So you can do it in a way uh, that is humane, that doesn't get everybody riled up, but is also efficient. I don't need to tell you, Congressman, that what happens is at our border is a fraction of U.S. immigration policy. We're actually talking about a much bigger, broader system. Do you think this upcoming Congress can get anything done that actually addresses some of the systemic issues that we see when it comes to immigration in America? Yeah, I mean, look, we absolutely could. 
Uh, you've got a Democratic president, a Democratic Senate, uh, and a Republican House. So I've seen in the past that where you have divided government like that, it actually provides an opportunity for compromise and for people to come together and sit at the table and, and work something out. Uh, but, you know, it's going to take a, a lot better faith among Republicans to actually do something about immigration rather than just using the chaos and everything uh, or creating chaos and using that as their number one political boogeyman, which is what they do now. It's their number one boogeyman. Yeah, I wonder what your message is to the Abbots, to the Ducies, to the DeSantis's of the world. Well, I would ask them to stop being pricks, first of all, because uh, that's what they're doing and stop being heartless, uh, but also to actually help us uh, solve this issue, uh, solve this challenge, rather than just trying to become the next Republican president in a few years. Texas Congressman Joaquin Castro, thank you so much for your time this evening. Much more to come on this busy news night, including a Republican who appears to put the con in congressman. A Republican representative-elect from New York State has come clean about lies he told about his background, his religion, and his business ventures. But each new answer he offers only raises more questions. And also, even more revelations from the January 6th investigation, what we learned today, and what prosecutors may do with it. That is next. Hi, it's Martha Stewart. You know, I spend a lot of time thinking about dirt. At 3 a.m.? At all hours of the day, really. What people don't know is that not all dirt is the same. You need dirt with the right kind of nutrients. New miracle Grow organic raised bed and garden soil is so dense, so full of nutrient-rich, high-quality ingredients. miracle Grow is simply the best. Whether you're a morning person or a bedtime procrastinator, everyone deserves a mattress that works for their style. And you'll find the best mattress for you at Ashley. The new Temper Adapt Collection at Ashley brings you one-of-a-kind body-conforming technology, making every sleep tailored to be your best. The collection also features cool-to-the-touch covers and motion absorption to help minimize sleep disruptions from partners, pets, or kids. Shop the all-new Temper Adapt Collection at Ashley in-store or online at ashley.com. Ashley, for the love of home. This afternoon, the January 6th committee released another trove of transcripts from interviews conducted with 16 witnesses during its investigation. We now know in the days after the January 6th attack, Trump Treasury Secretary Steve Mnuchin began looking into the process of removing Trump from office by Googling the 25th Amendment. Mnuchin also admitted discussing the 25th Amendment on at least one occasion with Trump's Secretary of State, Mike Pompeo. We also learned from these new transcripts that in the days after January 6th, Trump asked his labor secretary, Eugene Scalia, who Scalia thought was the most loyal member of the cabinet. Quote, I thought the appropriate answer was me. And so I said, I am Mr. President, Scalia told investigators, eliciting laughter in the room. Scalia also recounted how Transportation Secretary Elaine Cho called him on the night of January 6th about her plans to resign. He told the committee, quote, I think that she believed that in one manner or another, the president's conduct prior to the attack on the Capitol had contributed in one way or another to what happened at the Capitol. And that disturbed her. The transcript of Georgia's Secretary of State Brad Raffensperger says he felt Donald Trump's infamous phone call 
you know, asking him to find 11,000 votes was a threat. Raffensperger thought Trump's followers would carry out that threat if he did not comply. But perhaps the most interesting thing we learned from these transcripts today was, again, from the January 6th committee's star witness, Cassidy Hutchinson, the former aide to White House Chief of Staff Mark Meadows. This is part of a newly released transcript of her interview with the committee's vice chair, Liz Cheney. Quote, Liz Cheney, did you see Mr. Meadows put documents in his fireplace? Cassidy Hutchinson, yes, ma'am. Ms. Cheney, and do you know what the documents were? Hutchinson replies, I don't know. Liz Cheney, how frequently did you see him do this? Ms. Hutchinson, I mean, it's hard. I, I want to say once a week or twice. It's, I can recall specific times that I did, maybe a dozen, maybe just over a dozen. But this is over a period December through mid-January. Trump White House Chief of Staff Mark Meadows was regularly throwing White House documents into the fireplace in the period directly before and after January 6th. Now, we don't know what was in those documents that Mark Meadows was burning, but Cassidy Hutchinson does go on to describe several instances in which Meadows burned documents right after meeting with Pennsylvania Republican Congressman Scott Perry, Trump ally who reportedly sought a pardon from Trump for his role in trying to overturn the election. Quote, Ms. Hutchinson, quote, I know between two and four times Meadows had had Mr. Perry in his office right before burning the documents. Ms. Cheney, do you know what Mr. Perry was talking to him about? Ms. Hutchinson, election issues. Ms. Cheney, anything more specific than that? Cassidy Hutchinson, quote, the vice president's role on January 6th. Joining us now, political congressional reporter Nicholas Wu. Nicholas, thank you so much for being here. I got to tell you, that mental image of Mark Meadows just burning documents in a White House fireplace after meeting with Congressman Scott Perry, it sticks out. I wonder what you make of the revelations from today's transcripts. Well, with that particular instance that we, we learned about today really it really brings into the public record something that we had only heard about before. Um, you know, we at Politico had previously reported um, that particular incident, but it's much more powerful to see it on the record from Hutchinson in these transcripts. And at the same time, to me, what these transcripts reveal is the limitations of some of the January 6th committee's investigation. We never heard from Mark Meadows himself directly. So we can't ask, you know, the committee was never able to ask him about uh, uh, what was in those documents. The committee never heard directly from Republican members of Congress. So uh, Congressman Scott Perry was never specifically asked in that setting about those documents. And so, you know, the the, the torch here in in some ways is passed on to DOJ, which is carrying on the investigative mantle of the committee. And uh, we, we know that the DOJ already sees Congressman Scott Perry's phone as part of its larger investigation into January 6th. And so it remains to be seen exactly how that will all shake out. Yeah, we're going to talk about that in a minute with Barb McQuay. But I want to ask you, one of the things that came to light today was sort of this bizarre meeting with members of the House Intel Committee at the White House. For those who didn't pour over these documents today, can you just explain, recap what happened? So there's this bizarre sequence that Hutchinson describes uh, where where it appears that there were these Republican members of the House Intelligence Committee who were bringing these documents into the White House and then, um, you know, trying to pass them on uh, to folks there. And um, Hutchinson testified that, uh, you know, these were very closely held. um, 
so closely held in fact that, you know, when Meadows tried to get copies of them to leader McCarthy, and McCarthy didn't actually want them. We don't actually know the substance of these documents, but the time frame kind of lines up uh, with the Russia investigation and when Trump uh, you know, might have been trying to de- mass declassify documents. And so, um, again, this is where we run into some of the same issues uh, with the rest of the committee's investigation. They weren't quite able to penetrate every single barrier that was thrown up. And you know, this, this is kind of a black box for them. Well, to that point, Trump has promised pardons to Capitol rioters if he was reelected. I, I wonder what you made of the revelation in one of the transcripts that Trump asked Pat Cipollone for blanket pardons for people involved in the Capitol attack. That was a pretty startling revelation as well. Uh, Johnny McEntee, who had been a body man at the White House at one point, and, and at that point in time, you know, was, was pretty close to the president uh, in charge of personnel at the White House. Um, he, he testified about hearing uh, uh, that, that, that Trump had floated blanket pardons for, for people who had uh, been involved in nonviolent actions at the Capitol at, on January 6th, and the White House counsel pretty quickly shot that down. And it, 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 it tracks with a lot of other reporting that we'd heard from the White House at that time and reporting that we've seen you know, in the last uh, two years or so. But at the same time, you know, it, this is part of the January 6th committee's addition to the historical record, being able to see this sworn testimony from members of the president's inner circle about what was happening in those chaotic days after the attack. And a lot of the intrigue is in the details. I wonder, as someone who has actually gone through this page by page, what else stuck out to you? Well, what stands out to me are some of the interesting little vignettes that we see that you know aren't necessarily bombshells like that. But you know, as someone who's been you know watching politics over the past few years, uh, you know, just helped to shed a lot of more light. So, for example, uh, former White House press aide uh, Judd Deere had testified about this kind of bizarre twist at the end of the Trump administration. Normally, there's a daily schedule they put out, um, and it changed in those last weeks of the Trump administration to just say the president was taking many meetings and taking many calls. And Deere testified it was because Trump found out that the White House daily schedule was, in fact, public, and he wanted to change that. And that solved one of those kind of bizarre mysteries uh, from the end of the administration. So many bizarre mysteries yet unsolved. Political congressional reporter Nicholas Wu. Nicholas, thank you so much for joining us now. I want to turn to former U.S. Attorney Barbara McQuaid. Barb, as always, thanks for being with us. You looked through these transcripts today. What stood out to you? Well, uh, the thing you led the, uh, your report with about the number of cabinet officials who were concerned enough to be looking into the, to the 25th Amendment. I, I you know, a little deeper into their reasons for that. You know, their opinions, their views uh, is one thing, but in terms of relevance to a criminal criminal case, understanding what was motivating that, uh, I think could be very important. Finding out that, uh, you know, they too heard things from Donald Trump about an insurrection or a stolen election. So I think that is a red flag that uh, I'd want to probe into a little deeper. Yeah, it's pretty amazing that someone so well-resourced that they work at the White House decided that Google was their best resource for figuring out the 25th Amendment. I want to get your response to the revelation from Cassidy Hutchinson's testimony. You heard my dramatic reading there that Mark Meadows was burning documents in the fireplace in his office, specifically the timing around the meetings he was having and then his decision to burn documents. Yeah, well, we don't know what's in those documents, but Mm -hmm. it's a real red flag because 
when certainly White House officials need to dispose of documents from time to time. They receive classified documents, but they have shredders for that purpose. And they are then taken in custody and they're dealt with in a way that preserves their chain of custody so that they don't get into the wrong hands. Burning something is so incredibly reckless on a number of uh, scales that it really does, I think, raise more questions than it answers. Uh, but uh, I'll tell you, Mark Meadows is such the key to all of this. Uh, I would be thinking very hard about finding a way to flip him. He's got criminal exposure to the kingdom when it comes to Donald Trump. You know, the Justice Department, vast amount of evidence from the committee. I wonder how soon you expect them to decide whether or not to charge Trump the question that you and I constantly come back to. Well, I think it, it it's going to take some time. For one, they've got to pour through all of these things. And then it is likely that they're going to be looking for consistencies or inconsistencies in these transcripts from what they've heard from other witnesses. They are going to want to see if there are any leads here of people they ought to pursue. And they're going to be looking to see if there are people they can flip. But it's likely to drive the timing isn't so much how much they have left left to do as to the um, the timing on the other end. I think, you, you know, you certainly can't get to January 2025 when there's a new administration for fear that that new administration will shut things down. Uh, if you're going to have a trial uh, and uh, pretrial discovery and all the things that go into it, I think you have to work your way back. Uh, and I think that, you know, if I were setting a deadline here, I would tell people spring of 2023 really is, a, is a, the deadline you need to be working with. Don't work very hard and uh, try to get something done by then. Let me tease out something that, that you said in there, which is I, I wonder how you think Trump's looming announcement, this run for president, how that then impacts how they proceed or the timeline on which they proceed. Yeah, you know, the Justice Department has a policy that says that uh, you should never take investigative steps for the purpose of influencing an election. And so out of an abundance of caution, I think most prosecutors read that as even having the effect on influencing an election. And so as a result, there's this loose rule of about, six, about 60 days before an election, DOJ will kind of lie low in a cooling off period. But I don't read that as occurring until until you know, 60, 60 days or so before the first primary election, which will be January of 2024. So I, I would say that uh, in terms of policy, they're good until, what? where does that put us, November 1st or so of, of uh, 2023. But again, as we said earlier, I, I think as a practical matter, they need to see their deadline as more like spring of 2023 so that they can get through pretrial discovery and motions and a trial and be done before there's a new administration in 2025. Here's the thing I wonder, even as I as I read some of these transcripts out loud for our audience, I, we know the release of them is going to help DOJ in its investigation. There's a lot of information here. But but I wonder, you know, Trump and his allies, they, they can see this evidence. What does that then mean for Trump's defense? What is his team doing right now with this material? Yeah, this is terrible from DOJ's perspective that witness testimony is just out there in the ether. I think there are a number of things that can happen. One is um, Trump's team can review these documents and try to get their own witnesses to line up their stories to match the witnesses who've already, who've already testified. So there's a, a real danger there. They could intimidate witnesses. If they know that there's a witness who's given some really dynamite stuff, uh, they may uh, offer incentives to lie. They may threaten that person. And it also could cause other people to be less likely to come forward if they know that their uh, witness testimony could be out there. And I guess the last thing I'll say is it allows Trump and his team 
to start spinning a narrative that could taint a jury pool down the road by looking at these uh, witness transcripts, either uh, uh, trying, uh, trying to blunt trying to or undermining their credibility. So it's not a good situation for the Justice Department, but it is what it is. They get some benefits by having all this information. And the downside is it's all out there for the public to see and for Trump and his team to use strategically. The glass is half empty and half full. Barbara McQuaid, former U.S. attorney, thank you so much for making the time for us tonight. Much more to come tonight, including the next day of reckoning for former President Trump, has now been placed on the calendar. I'm going to tell you when you can pencil it in. But before we get to that, the most controversial new House Republican promised he would come clean about the many and varied lies he told during his campaign for Congress. And he did, kind of. But there are so many more questions that he and House Republican leaders need to answer. That is next. They say plants like music. Yeah, no, like really, they they respond to the vibrations of it, which means that this playlist you're listening to, the plants are too. You know what else plants like? Organic soil from miracle Grow. It's made with all the best stuff, like wood fiber and compost. Plus, it's Omri certified organic, which officially means it's made with superior ingredients. And when you give your plants the stuff that makes them happy, they won't judge you on your iffy playlist. Hear that, plants? So go ahead and give them miracle Grow. The living room is where you make life's most beautiful memories. But your sofa shouldn't be the one remembering them. The new life-resistant, high-performance furniture collection from Ashley is designed to withstand all the spills, slip-ups, and muddy paws that come with the best parts of life. Ashley high-performance sofas and recliners are soft, on-trend, and easy to clean. Shop the high-performance furniture in-store or online at ashley.com. Ashley, for the love of home. I'm not a fraud. I'm not a cartoon character. I'm not some mis- mythical creature that was invented. I- I'm no Russian puppet. I'm not a criminal. I committed absolutely no crimes. I'm not a wanted criminal in any jurisdiction. I'm not a fraud. I'm not a fake. I, I-, I didn't materialize from thin air. You know it's going well when you haven't even taken your seat in Congress. And these are the kind of interviews you're giving. That is, of course, Republican Congressman-elect George Santos of New York. His win last month in a previously blue district in the New York City suburbs, part of the reason Republicans will have a narrow majority in the U.S. House next year. But in the past week, starting with a blockbuster expose in the New York Times, it has become apparent that George Santos made a lot of stuff up about his own life and his background. Now, Santos has finally broken his silence, including just last hour to Fox News, and admitted that he did indeed lie about some of the things he is accused of lying about, but only some, like pretending he worked at major Wall Street firms that he never worked at and pretending to have graduated from college. He told the New York Post, quote, I own up to that. We do stupid things in life. But Santos somehow managed to do a day of mea culpa interviews without really answering for his biggest lies and omissions. He insists he is not wanted for any crime, but offers no explanation for the open criminal case against him in Brazil for check fraud. He says he never claimed to be Jewish, even though he certainly did. In fact, he claimed to be Jewish in a speech to the Republican Jewish coalition just last month. And at that same event, House Republican leader Kevin McCarthy bragged about Santos growing the ranks of Jewish Republicans in Congress. I really want to talk about who's the makeup of this new majority. You heard from some of all already. 
You know, with Max Miller in Ohio, George Santos in New York, and you had David Kustoff from Tennessee get reelected. He introduced him. Do you realize we have the largest Republican Jewish caucus in more than 24 years? Not bad, huh? Today, the Republican Jewish coalition said George Santos is not welcome at any of their future events because of his lies. And then there are all the questions Santos has not answered at all. Chief among them, where did he get the $700,000 he loaned his campaign? Just five years ago, he was evicted and fined because he couldn't even pay his rent. He apparently didn't get the money from his property investments because is now admitted he doesn't own the 13 properties he claimed to own with his family. It's worth noting the Republican Party has had kind of a problem with this sort of thing lately. The Republican candidate for Congress in Ohio's 9th District, J.R. Majewski, lied repeatedly about his military service. Another Republican House candidate in Minnesota also falsely claimed to have been in combat. Now, they both lost their races. And of course, Georgia U.S. Senate candidate Herschel Walker lied about everything from his businesses to his college degree to being a member of law enforcement. He lost also. George Santos appears to have created entire sections of his biography out of whole cloth. And George Santos won. So what happens now? Santos could face legal consequences if he lied not just to voters, but on financial forms filed with the federal government. In September, he claimed in federal filings to have a net worth of $11 million, which his local paper called, quote, an inexplicable rise, given that two years earlier, he claimed no assets over $5,000. It's also the question of whether there will be any ramifications for George Santos inside Congress. Congressional Republican leadership, who, again, have the slimmest of majorities heading into next year, they've avoided suggesting any kind of consequences for Santos. Tonight, at least one crack in that wall. Santos's fellow New York freshman Republican congressman-elect Nick Lalota says tonight that, quote, a full investigation by the House Ethics Committee and, if necessary, law enforcement is required. George Santos is set to be sworn in next week. Now, as the last few days show, what could happen in a week? One of the reporters who first broke the story of Santos's lies joins us next. Though at least one incoming House Republican has called for an investigation into George Santos, Republican leaders have largely remained silent on the growing controversy surrounding the incoming New York congressman and the fabrications of his life story. They've stayed silent for a few reasons. If GOP leadership were to demand that Santos resign, and Santos followed through, it would trigger a special election in New York's third congressional district. A district which had long been held by Democrats, went to Joe Biden in 2020, potentially impacting the narrow majority Republicans are slated to hold. Additionally, Santos had pledged to vote for Kevin McCarthy, Speaker of the House, next week. Now, as you well know, McCarthy is in a precarious situation right now where he might not have enough votes to win the speakership. And every little bit of support he can get could make the difference for him. Republican House leadership have failed to respond to requests for comment from The New York Times since they broke the story. They haven't released any statements on the matter either. According to the paper, quote, Privately, House Republican leadership has appeared to concede that Mr. Santos's situation is problematic, but has justified a lack of public condemnation by making the case that Democrats have their own problematic members. Republican Party leaders on Long Island, however, are being publicly critical of Santos, though they have stopped short of calling for a resignation. Nassau County Republican Chairman Joseph Caro said in a statement today that he was, quote, deeply disappointed 
Congressman-elect George Santos, adding that Santos has, quote, broken the public trust by making misstatements about his background and experience. Now, it's still unclear what's in store for George Santos or House Republicans as they prepare to assume the majority next week. Joining us now, Michael Gold, a reporter for The New York Times covering politics in New York. He is one of the reporters who first broke this story in national media. Michael, thanks so much for being here. Thanks for having me. All right. There's so much reporting to walk through here. I mean, when you have a story like this, where do you start? Sure. So we started taking a look at statements that uh, the congressman-elect had made on the campaign trail and then shifting uh, campaign biographies over his two campaigns. And one of the first things that we zeroed in on was this charity he claimed to have founded and ran. It was called Friends of Pets United, and he claimed it was registered with the IRS as a 501c3. My colleague, Grace Ashford, checked with the IRS. They had no record of uh, that registration. And so from there, we started to look at other claims that he'd made in his bios. You know, we had hoped to talk to people about Mr. Santos's time on Wall Street because he's presented himself as a seasoned financier, a big Wall Street guy. We reached out to Citigroup and Goldman Sachs, two places where he'd said he'd work, to find out when he'd worked there in the hopes that it would help us locate his coworkers and get a little more information about his jobs there. Both companies said that they had no record of him. So from there, we started paying a little more attention to the other claims in this biography. Yeah, I mean, there's sort of, there's a lot of material to work with here. Well, he's, he, I mean, he's pointed out he's been in the public eye for a while. You know, he first entered politics in 2019. He ran against Tom Suozzi in this very similar district. He lost that election. Uh, this, this cycle, Tom Suozzi tried to run for governor of New York, uh, so he gave up his seat, and Santos ran again, and there was a lot more attention to the race because it was an open seat. Um, and, and he's admitted to some of the inconsistencies that, that we've uncovered. uncovered excuse me, there, there are other things that he hasn't addressed, but I think there have been a lot of statements that he's made that have, have shifted over time that we, we've sort of zeroed in on. They're shifted in. There are a lot of things we don't know about, which I, which I promise we'll come back to. But I'm also struck by this dynamic, which is you have GOP House leadership wanting to remain silent on this, right? Sort of admitting quietly that it's problematic, but not really wanting to get out there and talk about it. And yet you have people who are not yet even... Uh, you know, sworn into Congress who are going out there and saying, I think this is a problem. I think we need an ethics investigation. And I wonder if you think that other Republicans will follow in suit. You know, it's hard to say. And I should say that we've reached out to um, Representative McCarthy and to House Republicans since our story first published last week, and we have yet to hear anything from them. It was striking to me to see Nick LaLota, an incoming congressman in a neighboring district, to uh, Santos speak up about this and call for a House ethics investigation. I don't think we were quite expecting that. And, and in the district directly to uh, Santos's south, Anthony Desposito also raised some questions and, and said that there were some, some questions that Santos needed to answer, and he felt that he needed to be a little more honest with voters. So we are definitely starting to see some pressure, at least out on Long Island. I think the question is whether we see more of that, whether it increases over time. I mean, as you said, a week is both a long time and not a lot of time at all. So it's hard to say what will happen before Congress starts again. Well, especially because there are two questions here, right? There, there's does House leadership come out and say something? And then there's what's really the bigger question, which is if you have a Congress that is led by Republicans and you have an ethics committee that is run by Republicans, whether or not they're even interested in pursuing this materially. It's hard to say what will happen. And I should just acknowledge I don't cover the Hill. My expertise is here in New York. We're certainly trying to get more information about what might happen, not just with the House Ethics Committee, with the bipartisan Office of Congressional Ethics. You know, Dan Goldman, who's also an, an incoming congressman, this time a Democrat, but here in New York City, has said that 
he believes that there's enough material for federal, federal prosecutors to investigate. We have no idea whether that's something they're exploring or not, but there's certainly calls from investigations from all sides. All right, let me talk to you then about your expertise since you are covering <laughs> sure. New York, which is you did have papers in Long Island, local papers yes. that were looking into this, but it was the New York Times sort of brought all of this to national attention. I wonder if it's surprised you what the conversations you're having internally with your colleagues are about the fact that George Santos is not granting you an interview, is not answering your questions. Sure. I think Grace Ashford and I, we broke the first story. We'd love to have had the chance to talk to Mr. Santos. We reached out to him several times uh, and never got an answer. We were told through his representatives that he wasn't interested in, in speaking with us. And I can't speak to why or why that why not that might be. Um, it's nice to have him speaking. He promised last week he would tell a story. He's now given four interviews that I can count um, to local outlets and, and Fox News tonight. So it's, it's good to have his voice on the record. I think there are still a lot of questions that we have that we'd like the opportunity to ask. You brought me perfectly to where I was headed. Let's talk about those questions that you still feel. I mean, to your point, he is now done a full slate of interviews. And even with those interviews, there are still many questions that remain unanswered. Which are top of mind for you? Uh, so to be honest, we still haven't gotten a full accounting for Friends of Pets United, the charity that he ran. It was an animal rescue nonprofit, and we just haven't fully figured that out. Uh, there's still a lot of questions that we have about how Mr. Santos was able to reverse his financial fortunes in a way, you know, in the mid-2010s. That seems like a core part of all of this. Yeah, and just to walk you through, in the, in the mid-2010s, uh, he was facing a string of eviction-related cases. He, he had some credit card debt, you know, thousands of dollars that added up over time, which he's admitted to and he's acknowledged. I mean, these are court filings, but he's acknowledged them. And, and in 2020, when he was running his first campaign, he filed a federal disclosure saying his salary at the time was $55,000 a year. And that was a considerably more modest race than he ran this year. When he filed that disclosure, he said that he was making $700,000 from the DeVolder organization, which is his own personal business, uh, and that the company was also paying dividends of $1 to $5 million. That's a significant change. And he has not fully explained how his business works. He, he described it to City and State, a, a local outlet here in New York, as a consulting firm. But we're not entirely clear who his clients are, which is something that I think is a concern to anybody who, who has a, a member of Congress representing them. You want to know what their business interests are and how that might affect the way that they make decisions. Yeah, I mean, it is interesting given that we are living in a moment where we would like transparency more generally from, from our elected officials, that this is sort of the standard that has been set. I wonder, to your point about the fact that the, the pressure is really actually coming locally, if you see sort of a pressure point that could tip this? You know, I, I don't know. I, I can't predict the future. I, I will say, I think one of the things that seems to have really resonated with people is, is claims that uh, Mr. Santos made about his Jewish ancestry and the idea that his maternal grandparents left Europe during the World War II era. And I bring that up because he's in a district with a lot of Jewish voters. That's something that seems to have really rankled a lot of people. And, and once that story came out last week from the forward, a Jewish publication, that's when I think we really started to see the pressure ramp up here. Michael Gold covering politics in New York for the New York Times. Thank you so much Thank for you. making the time to be with us tonight. And we have one more story for you just ahead. Key information that former President Trump tried to keep secret. It's about to be made public. What he doesn't want you to see and when you will get to see it, that is next. Stay with us. This is a Citation X private jet. It has nine seats and is very fast and you might recognize this one in particular because former President Trump used it extensively on the 2016 campaign trail. But here's the thing. Trump doesn't actually own this plane directly. He owns a trust, and that trust owns a limited liability corporation called DT Endeavor One LLC. 
And that LLC owns this plane. Now, get this. In its 2016 taxes, that LLC claimed a total gross income of $680,886 and total expenses of $680,886, exactly even. Somehow also have the exact same amount of income and expenses in 2020. The same thing goes for the LLC Trump owns that owns his iconic Trump helicopter. This pattern actually goes all the way down to small things like the taxes for the just under $4,000 Melania Trump supposedly earned for modeling in 2019. Somehow, a lot of Trump-related businesses seem to conveniently end up with the exact same amount of income and expenses. Other of Trump's businesses, like the LLC that owns Trump's Trump Force One gold-plated 757 jet, which I should mention Trump has managed to use entities like his own campaigns and the Secret Service to funnel money toward, that LLC somehow ended up with no income to report at all and a couple thousand dollars in expenses. Convenient. Convenient and suspicious. This whole bucket worth of red flags is just one of the many buckets of red flags two House committees pointed out in the reports on Trump's taxes last week. Both of those committees only had their hands on Trump's taxes for about 20 days with a limited number of staff. They're not shy about how they could not have caught everything wrong with them. We can now report that the House Ways and Means Committee will be publishing the entirety of Trump's taxes from 2015 to 2020 this Friday. So buckle up. The crowdsource portion of this is getting ready for takeoff. There's likely more turbulence ahead. It does it for us tonight. We're going to see you again tomorrow. On this episode of Plant Killers, we'll explore one nation's most notorious fruit and vegetable killer, bad dirt. What makes bad dirt so bad? The answer, the ingredients. But fear not, true crime enthusiasts. This story has a happy ending. New miracle Grow organic raised bed in garden soil. It's made with quality organic ingredients from upcycled green waste like compost and aged bark. Unlike the other guys who can't say the same. Looks like bad dirt's murdering days are over. Thanks to miracle Grow. Join us next time on Plant Killers.